Sterling Fox with you, joined by a couple of professors from Queen's University to talk about the fear factor. Of course, the big story here in BC is the school returning, voluntary returning to, to classes tomorrow. A lot of parents, a lot of teachers, a lot of people on both sides of the equation extremely nervous about that. More businesses continue to reopen, to uh, restart, to, to try to well regain uh, some serious lost revenue. And it's all about the fear factor, whether we're talking about uh, going back to school or going to get your hair cut or just going out and buying some new clothes that you've been putting off for a few weeks. Overcoming the fear factor is a big part of it for the business owner, the staff at that business, and all of those potential customers. Here to talk about it, uh, they wrote a terrific article about getting over the fear factor in theconversation.com which you can reference anytime. Uh, our guests are Tina Dasik, who is a, a, pr- a Professor from the uh, School of Strategy and Organizational Behavior. Tina Dason is a professor at Queen's University in Ontario. Professor Dason, Tina, welcome to the program. Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you with us. Also joining us is uh, uh, Tina's co-author, Professor Laura Rees, uh, who is in the Department of Organizational Behavior as well at Queen's University in Ontario. Professor Rees, Laura, good morning to you. Good morning to you. It's good to be here. Well, it's good to have both of you. Uh, this article, this coronavirus recovery, small businesses must focus on easing employee and customer fears. And Tina, you talk about, you know, uh, getting the, the markers on the floor so that you're six uh, feet apart when you're lined up to cash out at the, at the register. Uh, you've got new procedures for trying on clothes or not. You've got your physical space all readjusted. But you, you and, and Laura talk about for let's not forget the hearts and minds of employees and customers because no matter what other organizational or logistical changes the business owner makes tina it's a question of who's going to come in the door isn't it right there's a lot there's a lot of fear absolutely and uh I'll turn it over to Laura to talk about uh, some of those emotions and the complexity of emotions. But I think you're right on that a lot of um, old rituals are now gone. Things that we used to love to do, you could go into the store, try on as many clothes as you want. Some people are saying that now they're not going to be allowing that Mm -hmm. to happen. Um, Old rituals such as, you know, giving someone a hug if you've worked with them a long time. Like I know with my stylist, for example, that's the first thing we would always do. Sure. And in the article, we actually wrote that now, you know, you can have a smile, but I'm thinking, I've been thinking about this the last couple of days a lot. When you're wearing a mask, you can't really see someone smile the same way. That's true. So I I think that's a big conundrum of how do you establish and reestablish trust and reestablish that closeness that you once held Um, and uh, that feeling that it gave you in your heart, it gave you joy when you saw someone. How do you express that now? So that's uh, that's very key. Yeah, Yeah, and Laura, let's talk about some of the research that's gone into this uh, understanding the hearts and minds of employees and customers and the sorts of bridges that uh, business owners need to, well, in some cases, build for the first time and certainly reopen in many others. I think it's just such an important topic. I mean, you really hit on something key with with the emotions piece of it. I think, uh, you know, our our work shows that so often we're used to things working a certain way, and and emotionally we we sometimes just ignore how we're feeling or how we're seeing other people feeling. And as Tina pointed out, now it's harder to see how other people are feeling because we can't see parts of their faces. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the the biggest keys in this is just – 
just sort of giving yourself permission to be human, knowing that emotions, uh, as I always tell my students, they're not good or bad. No single emotion is good or bad. It just is. And so learning how to recognize it, acknowledge it, use it for its benefits. Any emotion can have benefits, but also mitigating then some of the, some of the risks that we would see with, with specific emotions can really help you kind of maximize this, this crazy time uh, emotionally without having to feel that you need to suppress it or ignore it um, or not just address it, really. Uh, does it uh, surprise you, either one of you at all, that so many people are literally on the bubble? That they were just, you know, we're just, you know, I, I had dinner with my daughter the other night, and she said, I, I, whom I hadn't seen for two months, and she said, oh man, I so need some new clothes, but I'm still really worried about going shopping. So uh, there's this kind of ambivalence there about I want to, and yet I'm not sure I should. So uh, uh, talk to us a little bit, Laura, about some of the research you've done on this sort of ambivalence that may, in in fact, be a good thing. And your daughter is exactly right. Ambivalence often feels really uncomfortable. We naturally often don't like that feeling of of vacillating between kind of two opposing um, emotions about a specific thing and and don't know what to do. It can lead to paralysis. Well, if I can't decide to go in or not, you know, I'll just do nothing. Sure. Uh, So it's such an important question. There are benefits, though, as you note, to ambivalence. Some of, some of my work has shown uh, can actually make you more open-minded, more open to alternative perspectives, because you, your body senses it's an unusual experience, and so maybe I need to pay attention and maybe react to the situation in a different way than I might normally. Uh, and so becoming attuned to that feeling, so thinking, you know, not getting stumped by this uncomfortable ambivalence, but thinking, you know, I'm, I'm seeing that I'm feeling ambivalent. What can I do to use this in a productive way? Uh, and one thing is that it does make you more open-minded. It can make you, uh, it can help you make better decisions because you're seeking out more diverse information to help inform how you're deciding what to do next. Um, can really kind of help you benefit from that without kind of getting stuck, which is a common response and a completely understandable response to ambivalence. Um, so I would say just one way to to use that is just recognize it and say, okay, you know, what what additional information can I get that would help me resolve this situation and know you know, what the best action is for me then going forward. Exactly. And Tina, uh, there is a, a terrific search for that information right now. The ambivalence, is, as Laura says, is, is can be a good thing because it causes you to pause and, and you're naturally apprehensive about all of this COVID business in the first place. And so you're really frantically, in some cases, sort of casting about for information. Uh, and so the, Absolutely. Import- the, the important thing is, is to, to assure yourself that you're getting at least good information. Yes, and that's where I think we need to be sure that we go to um, sites for information that are reputable, that, um, you know, provide factual data, scientific data, Mm. evidence-based work. And I think that it behooves the store owners, too, to be able to manage perceptions and communicate with their employees and with their customers what they need to do. I think nowadays what's going to have to happen post-COVID and after reopening is that store owners are going to have to tell more, they're going to have to show more, but they're also going to have to engage in this two-way dialogue of saying, okay, I know that you're ambivalent, I know that my customers and employees are afraid, Mm -hmm. what is it that they need in terms of assurance for me that I'm doing everything I can that is in their best interest as well? So people need that two-way dialogue to feel assured and reassured that they can shop, that they can, um, you know, uh, experience services, everything 
with knowing full well that every precaution is being taken to the extent possible. We have two guests joining us from Ontario today, Professors Tina Dason and Laura Rees from the School of Business at Queen's University. They are professors of organizational behavior and they are co-authors of a recent article which you can read anytime at theconversation.com called Coronas Recovery. Small businesses must focus on easing employee and customer fears. And Professor Dason, to you, Tina, uh, a question about starting a dialogue, which is one of the recommendations you and Laura have for business owners and their customers. Here in BC, uh, school starts tomorrow uh, for some. It's a voluntary return, kind of a dress rehearsal, actually, for September. But what the school districts across the province have done is send out surveys to parents saying, so what do you think about your kid coming back to school for a few weeks in June? Are you okay with that? What could we do at the school to make things a little better to assuage some of those fears? This is a strategy that you and Laura have recommended business owners undertake with their clients as well. Yeah, I love what the schools have done. Uh, I live in Ontario, as you know, and and I'm so envious of your situation in BC. It's remarkable. Your uh, your um, head of public health there is amazing, Bonnie Henry. Mm-hmm. She's from the East Coast. She's incredible. And I I sit back and I think about this, and I think that dialogue has to take place in multiple, multiple areas. Store owners, for sure, need to be asking customers, maybe having feedback that customers can provide to them online, even perhaps, uh, with feedback. What could we be doing? Um, How could we do it better? And, And use that to calibrate. I think the ongoing calibration, there's so much that we just don't know about this virus, and we also just don't know about what people's concerns and needs are. As my colleague Laura said, you know, people are going to feel different levels of fear. Yes. And we need to be able to address that range of emotions in people. And so the only way to do that is to get feedback and then to calibrate and to ask people, what are we doing well? What did you like about what we're doing? But what could we be doing better? And a lot of that should be taking place or could be taking place on social media and other platforms prior to the reopening, which serves a, a sort of a two-function uh, uh, purpose because, A, it, 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 it engages potential customers or certainly existing customers, and B, lets them know that you're coming back on uh, into business in, in a few weeks. Uh, Laura, talk to us a little bit about something that you and Tina reference in your article, the whole business of managing perceptions. What does that mean? Uh, I, it's a it's a good question, and I I want to highlight too something that Tina just said about calibrating to each person, and I think that's an important part of of managing perceptions, and it's understanding that, um, you know, a company has a relationship with each individual customer, each individual employee, and so kind of communicating very clearly, very often, uh, and very succinctly about what's happening can give everybody in that situation, all the parties concerned, you know, a good sense of, of, I understand what's going on, I feel more control over the situation, I can feel more comfortable, this can help address some of my fears and some of my emotional um, concerns about interacting again in in this kind of new world uh, that we're in. Um, And I'll pitch it actually back to Tina, some of her excellent work on kind of rituals and traditions that we have in an organizational relationship really speaks well to how we can manage perceptions and, and this new situation. Right. And Tina, of course, there's no more, uh, uh, there's no greater North American ritual than shopping, is there? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, and I, I mean, I have to, I was just made me think, uh, recently, I went to a food land, it's a grocery store sure, yeah. here in Ontario, uh-huh. and I went to a food land in my neighborhood, and I have to tell you how amazing it was, because I've gone to so many other stores, but this was the first time I had a shopping experience that was exactly what Laura said. When I walked up to the door, there was a gentleman standing at the door who asked, have you been shopping the last month or so? And he said, have you been at our store? And then he explained how everything would work, that I would go in, there'd be lines on the floor I had to follow, I could only go in one direction, that they advised that if I picked up produce with my hands, that I actually bought that produce, that I didn't pick up 10. I mean, they had all these recommendations, but it was so well done that I left feeling very, very empowered in a way, but in control of my emotional state going into the store. And I thought that was just something It just made me think of it while listening to Laura talk, that that experience um, that store owners can do to engage with their customers in that way can actually alleviate a lot of the fear and anxiety that we have. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I go shopping, I have huge anxiety, and shopping used to be my happy zone. Mm-hmm. And now I have massive, massive anxiety every time I step out to go into a store. Yeah. So the, well, the example, I, so go ahead. the example you gave, Tina, is, is really great because you felt heard as an individual customer, and that specific. Oh, and I loved it. I loved it because individual I had fears. Yeah, your individual yeah. fears felt respected and addressed in a way that's not the sort of mass market. Absolutely. And, yeah. and I suppose yeah. the fact that the individual at the entrance to the supermarket took a few seconds to say, welcome, uh, you know, we're, we're concerned about your experience here. So here's what's going to happen. Here's how things have changed. Off you go. Have a nice time. Uh, that brief interaction at the front door actually went a, a, a fair distance by the sounds of it, Tina, to reducing yeah, your fear factor. Yeah. yeah, it made the world of difference. Yeah, it made the world of difference. I can't tell you how great I felt because the fact that he told everyone to do that, everyone knew the expectations. I don't know about you, but I've been shopping recently, and what I found is that there are arrows, but no one follows them. Yes. There are two-meter rules, but no one follows them. They recommend you wear masks inside of grocery stores, but I'd say maybe 10 20% of people do. Right. So I think if, if people could clarify and clearly communicate, that would just change the experience altogether. Anything else to add to that, Laura? Just in terms of, again, uh, uh, reducing the fear factor, which is what you and Tina have written about. I think the only thing I would add is, again, emotions are an excellent source of information. Uh, so they're not something to be ignored or to suppress or to tamp down. Uh, I mean, if I, if I said to you, hey, I have a way of predicting people's behaviors, of understanding not just their behaviors, but their motivations, behind what they're doing, you know, why Tina would, would react in a certain way when going into a store or something like this. Right. I bet most people would say, sell me this product. Sure. What is this magic that you Absolutely. have? Absolutely. And it's not magic. It's, it's just the science behind recognizing, acknowledging, and understanding how emotions influence everybody all the time. And again, uh, referencing that shopping experience, and we're seeing it at the retail level under just about every circumstance, somebody's minding the front door. And that person, mm-hmm. it's not, we're not talking about a greeter at Walmart either. We're talking about a staff person whose job it is to keep an eye on the number of people in the store at any given time and also to welcome people. And perhaps a little interaction such as the one you experienced, Tina, goes a tremendous distance in terms of settling things down. 
Yeah, I love that you use the word welcome because I think that right now with so much anxiety, fear, apprehension, ambivalence, I think it's really important to show that you welcome people, that you care about them, and that you are hoping that they will have a good experience. It's an excellent article in The Conversation written by our two guests, Professors uh, Laura Reese and uh, Tina Dason from Queen's University. Thank you both for joining us this morning, and thank you for the article. It was very good, and we do appreciate your time today. Global News Time, 7.30. Good morning. I'm Emily Lazatin. Cities across the U.S. are imposing curfews to try to stem violent protests over the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis police custody. Uh, police and National Guard troops are demonstrating force by firing tear gas and rubber bullets at crowds. Police have arrested more than 1,400 people in 17 cities since Thursday. New York City suffered its worst day of unrest in decades yesterday. Floyd, a black man, died Monday after a white police officer officer who was later fired put his knee on his neck for several minutes the that officer is now charged with third degree murder now more with matt gutman who reports protests quickly turn violent seeming to overwhelm police in seattle two ar-15 rifles taken from a police car a quick thinking security guard grabs one rifle and removes the magazine in Chicago, more cars set on fire, police raising the bridges, clashes breaking out there. And one group of people seen on camera beating three officers before other protesters put themselves in harm's way to stop the violence. Again, the National Guard has been called in to support police officers in many cities. Overseas, Italy has had demonstrations of its own this kind as orange vest protesters took to the streets. The anti-mask wearing and anti-vax group called for an exit from the euro and a return to the former Italian currency of the lira. The movement's leader, former Carabinieri police captain Antonia Pappalardo, dressed in a bright orange blazer and wide orange tie, hugged and threw his arms around various supporters. Milan's mayor Giuseppe Sala and other politicians condemned the gathering, calling it an act of irresponsibility as the city puts great effort into trying to bring down the infection rate. Megan Williams, ABC News, Rome. Global news for Alpine Credits. Homeowners get approved. Visit alpinecredits.ca. Global news time is 7.32. Now the latest AM 730 traffic. Here's Ryan Lee Hall. It's pretty good early morning commute so far. Not a whole lot of volume out there on the roads, but still plenty of ongoing road work. Let's start over in Burnaby, Burnaby Mountain Parkway, right in between Centennial and Gillardy. That's down to single lane traffic there in both directions. Uh, low heat between Underhill and Gillardy. Lane closures there as well in both directions. And also do keep in mind over in Surrey, 148th Street. That's still shut down right in between 100th and 108th Avenue. And 72nd between 128th and 132nd. Lane closures there in effect in both directions. In the AM730 Traffic Center, I'm Ron Lee Hall. Your latest Global Sky Tracker weather now. A few showers ending near noon, then a mix of sun and cloud, 18 degrees, partly cloudy tonight, down to 11. Tomorrow and Tuesday, clear highs in the high teens, still 19 degrees, and it's a mix of sun and cloud on Wednesday and Thursday. Global News Time now is 7.33. I'm Emily Lazatin. We all have pretty much come to the conclusion over the past couple of months through these bizarre circumstances of lockdown and uh, watching the entire planet go through the same process that COVID-19 is indeed a game changer. 
So how exactly will the game change as we plan our future? We're very fortunate this morning to be joined by a former chief planner for the city of Vancouver. Brent Totterin is on the line. Mr. Totterin, not only for six years, the chief planner for the city of Vancouver, and that included our uh, 2010 Olympic stint as well. He's also worked for Calgary, Halifax, Edmonton, London, North Van, Abbotsford, New Westminster, Regina, and Ottawa, to name but a few. Brent Totterin, good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us, Brent. Uh, Before we get into COVID and city uh, planning for the future, I wonder if I could just pick your brain for a couple of moments, Brent, as a city planner with global connections on what has happened in some of America's major cities over the past few days. I know it's not a city planning issue specifically, but it's it's hard to watch some of the biggest and best-known cities in the United States literally almost explode. Well, it is a city planning issue, but it's more than just a city planning issue. Certainly, city planning is one of the many things that it can be affected and is has been affected by systemic racism. So it plays out in a lot of f- spheres of interest. It plays out in how we plan our communities, how we address issues of equity and poverty in our community planning, uh, how we think about streets and, and who streets are for. And the concept of safety. We're about to have a conversation about safe streets yes. in the con- context of a pandemic. Yep. And it has been somewhat odd for me to think that we're having that conversation at the same time as the notion of safety in streets relative to race, relative to police activity, etc. in the United States, things are literally exploding with a very different kind of conversation about safety in our streets and in our communities. So, yes, the, 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 the connection is striking. It is part of the larger conversation about city planning, but it's part of the larger conversation about a lot more than that. Certainly is, Brent, and I appreciate your remarks in that regard. You weren't expecting that, but, I mean, it's it's been impossible not to observe for the past several days. And I hadn't connected the dots necessarily the same way you sort of automatically did in terms of you, because you said, yes, it is a city planning issue to a certain extent. Yes, and, and there's not nearly enough of a conversation about equity and race in city planning, all the way down to the details of street design, and how we use space in cities, uh, who, is, who, who streets are for, who communities are for. Mm-hmm. And, and there's been racism prevalent in a lot of city planning practices. And I'm a white male, and so I have the, the privilege that, uh, that comes with that usually and, and the, the, blind, uh, the, the blind spots that can come with that privilege. But I think as, as we have a very overt conversation about this, uh, that's the only way we can really have a different kind of outcome. And that involves a lot, of including and and empowering a lot more voices in the com- in the conversation than we usually have. Interesting stuff, absolutely. Now, one of the things that people are saying, by the way, Brent, as a as a consequence of COVID nineteen, and I'm I'm specifically looking at New York City, which of course is America's most hard hit hotspot for COVID-19, the most fatalities, the most cases, and so on. And one of the things that we're hearing from people, residents, from New Yorkers, Brent, is, 
I'm out of here. I am not going to live downtown in Manhattan. I'm going to find myself a little spot in Connecticut or New Jersey or somewhere. I'm heading to the burbs. This congestion, this this idea of living in a little box uh, 13 stories up in the middle of, you know, surrounded by millions of people uh, that was once ever so attractive to me is no longer that. And I'm looking to escape. Are you hearing that? Are you seeing a fair bit of that? Well, there was that conversation certainly at the beginning of the pandemic in the and and there always is some of that. But it's interesting that when that you assess that narrative against the conversation we just had, because it's usually the affluent who have that statement and have that option. Sure. Whereas the, the, the vast majority of the public doesn't have that option to go out to some leafy place where there's where there's more breathing space. The truth, though, is and I weighed in on this for for a for an article in New York City very early in the pandemic, the truth is the density, the actual compactness of New York is not the problem. And it was a problem that that uh, Governor Cuomo was using the word density, which is a very specific term <laughs> with usually was a specific meaning. And right. my article was, and I have a great deal of respect for Governor Cuomo, but I said, please stop saying density is the problem. It's not. Crowding is the problem. And often crowding is a result of management of, of people in space, i.e., you know, uh, whether you have an con- outdoor concert, for example, mm-hmm. more than it is how many people actually live in your community. Because density can bring great resiliency. It can also support the kinds of local things like shopping and high-quality hospitals that actually make communities more resilient during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And indeed, when the data was starting to come out, we actually saw that viral spread was much more even in the parts of New York City that were suburban than they were in the urban places. So density was not the problem. But how a government can proactively manage crowding, which is the issue here, has been the issue here uh, in Vancouver and in the, at every other place, uh, and the culture of crowding it, that you see play out in places like Italy, uh, where people don't want to not crowd in sure. places like that. It's part of their culture. That's the real challenge. And that can overlap with density, but you can have density without crowding and you can have crowding without density. But the human reaction to the the density or crowding, however you define it, Brent, uh, for some, the reaction has been in the wake of the pandemic and the uh, the the ease with which it has spread through such large numbers of people has caused some people to just seek uh, to flee. And I think particularly certain demographic groups uh, are more likely to have that conversation, not just affluence, but also age. The older uh, um, uh, constituencies might have a greater interest in leaving the city because they don't necessarily have the advantages uh, and and reasons to be in the city that young people have. So there's one prediction that says young people will continue to want to be in the city for obvious reasons once once this pandemic has been addressed and the fear has 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 subsided, but that older folks may decide they want to live somewhere else. Listen, there's just not a lot of space somewhere else. The yeah. funny thing about crowding is the more people leave one place and go to another place, the more crowded that other place is. And there's only a finite amount of space out in the quote unquote suburbs. But here's the conversation I really want to have. Um, If we react to this pandemic based on fear, if we make individual and collective decisions based on fear of the short term risk of pandemic spread, and we do it in a way that ends up putting our foot on the gas towards even bigger crises like climate change because we build more sprawl out in the suburbs, 
We drive more instead of less, which we badly needed to drive less before this pandemic. We do a number of the things that will actually make climate change faster and worse. Ironically, with many consequences, including worse and more pandemics, because that is one of the consequences of climate change, will have made our future worse because of our fear of this particular crisis that we happen to be in. So I think we need to be having a very overt and loud conversation about not making our future worse by reacting to the short-term fear of this pandemic in really bad, stupid ways uh, for the collective future of our society. Yeah, I need to take a break. But just before I do, the business of driving, it's an interesting point that you've made because many of us, I'm, I, to the amazement of my own children, Brent, over the fa- past few years, I've become a very much a public transportation user. Got the compass card, I use SkyTrain, the whole bit, as often as I can, even buses for crying out loud. I haven't been on, a, uh, on any implement of public transportation in months, as I assume assume many other Vancouverites have been ridership is down almost 50 percent and the reason simply is concern it's because in the safety of your own car you are isolated on a bus or a sky train you aren't uh, and and that's that's a kind of a crowding thing there isn't it well yes and it's one of many crowds that needs to be managed and to give TransLink and other uh, transit authorities around the world credit They've been usually pretty good and proactive about, frankly, sending the message that we need fewer people. During a pandemic, we need fewer people to be taking public transit. That's why the working from home policies of all our employers has been so critical. We need fewer people traveling, period, but certainly fewer people on transit. The question is, how long will that last? Mm -hmm. Will that have a lasting effect on transit? Because if it does, that has a really bad effect on the future of our success of our cities. And secondly, what do those transit trips become? Do they become work from home uh, with no trip at all? Do they become biking trips? And we've seen a big spike in urban biking. You bet. Or walking trips. But if they become car trips, let's be clear, that's just more people stuck in, in the same amount of finite gridlock space. And the irony is car trips are not safe. They may have an effect, and there's debate on this, but they may have an effect on, on limiting viral spread. But let's be clear, before this pandemic started, the number one cause of death of young people on the planet was car crashes. Mm. So we can't trade one risk for another. We need healthier, more sustainable scenarios. And that includes transit surviving and thriving. But it's good if we're actually getting more walking, biking, and working from home as a result of this. Bike sales in Metro Vancouver up during the month of March, 640%. Our guest is Brent Totterin, former Vancouver City Chief Planner. Brent, as we look at the great cities of the world, and you've worked for some of them, uh, as they cope with the COVID-19 pandemic, it is certainly not a one-size-fits-all approach by any means. But as you look around the world, what cities have done a better job than others in terms of adjusting, pivoting, to use the buzzword of the day, to accommodate this in a practical way? Well, it's been interesting to watch this and particularly interesting to watch it over the, what are we in, eight or nine or almost 10 weeks of this. We've seen different um, observations as time has passed. The Latin American cities, I I was an advisor to Medellin, Colombia, for example, for two and a half years. Latin American cities are very good at already having thought about transforming their streets for people instead of cars. They were doing it already, closing streets on Sundays to make uh, room for walking and biking. 
opening streets for people, really. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they were the quickest to react. And they did almost immediate things and big dramatic things. That was very inspiring for other global cities. North American cities, um, the American cities were really slow. Uh, we were faster in Canada, but our first moves were pretty timid. And, and I put Vancouver in that context where we made the move in Stanley Park. We made the move for Beach Avenue leading to Stanley Park, yep. which were two pinch points. Mm-hmm. But we didn't show real big thinking. The American cities then started to come along and show big thinking in the context of some of the stuff I and others were talking about. What we needed was a large network of transformed streets for people, not a few destinations that could be sexy and become a scene, but something that's hyper-local, very non-sexy, very ordinary, and equal in the sense that it networked through all sorts of neighborhoods, rich neighborhoods, poor neighborhoods, etc., and, and, and create a real network for transportation, but also local opportunities, hyper-local. Cities like Oakland transformed 10%, very quickly, 10% of its entire street length into streets that were open for people. And that inspired a lot of people because Oakland sort of came out of nowhere uh, and inspired. Similarly, in European cities, we started to see the conversion of space for restaurants and cafes. Vilnius, Lithuania. yes became a world-famous city in city planning overnight because they transformed their entire city center into a a massive open-air cafe. And i got to tell you, it's remarkable seeing so many North American cities who may never have heard of Vilnius before were suddenly citing Vilnius as their inspiration for putting in place really quick new policies and waiving of fees and processes to get restaurant patio space out there into the public realm to help save our restaurants from 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 closing, for for example. Let me let so me pick up. To... Yeah, let me pick up on that, sure. Brent. Because uh, and I saw the pictures of Vilnius, and I knew where it was, but I've never been there, and I I hadn't ever, frankly, paid a whole lot of attention to it. But I did see the pictures, and I've seen many of those big open city squares in many European cities over the years. So to 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 see that model uh, back uh, in, in a different locale was was kind of a, a positive. Uh, what about Vancouver, though? We are uh, in terms of using that pivot word. Again, we are seeing city council now entertaining notions of fast-tracking patio space, closing down perhaps lanes or portions of streets. Kelowna has just done it to uh, to Bennett mm-hmm. Street, right down the, the center of town. Uh, uh, is there uh, enough of an appetite to get the job done quickly enough here in Vancouver to the point where it may actually help, indeed save, some restaurants? I think it's interesting that that particular issue, saving restaurants by giving them outdoor space because, frankly, it's safer outdoors and they need the space to physically distance. Sure. That, that issue in Canada stands a much better chance of happening super quickly. It, it's, it's, it's interesting from an ideology and culture of City Hall perspective that our politicians have been quicker to act to save restaurants by transforming space outside buildings then they have to give safe walking space for people. Uh, it's a very interesting ideological block that we have, especially when inconveniencing cars is, is, is in play. Uh, but uh, cities have taken quicker action. The motions that they are making, city councils, to, to change the rules have an immediacy to them that I don't necessarily see in the motions that cities are creating, councils are creating to transform streets for people. And so uh, whatever it takes, I say, whatever it takes for the local politicians to actually rethink the nature of streets, how much space we actually have left over, very little space left over between buildings, 
after we consider how much of that space we've surrendered to cars, Mm -hmm. whatever it takes to get local politicians and local leaders to look with new eyes at, at how tight our public life is, Uh, and we consider that space for cars, then that's a good thing. But I think the best cities, the smartest cities, are looking at the issue of outdoor patio space combined with needing safe uh, transportation space, just outdoor space for mental respite and physical exercise. They're looking at it all at once during this pandemic, and they've got the eye to permanency. They already know that our cities had pre-existing conditions that needed to be solved from urban pollution to climate change to just a lack of livability because of too many cars. And, and they're looking for permanent solutions that actually make the cities better after the pandemic, not just riding out this pandemic in a healthier way. No kidding. That, that's the, right. And that's the point. And that's with just a couple of seconds remaining in our conversation, not fair in terms of amount of time. But it is it is a mm. game changing experience for every person on Earth. How mm. are our our cities globally? How, how What's the most fundamental change you expect pretty much universally? Well, what I hope is that we all look at our public space differently. We've been having debates about how much space should be taken up by the car in cities forever, it seems. But now we have new eyes because we have to not only exist and share that space, but we have to do it two meters apart from everyone else. So it's always been tight. So I hope all of us look at it with new eyes. I I hope all of us reconsider how much space we've given over to, to the car because This is about the city working better for everyone, including drivers. This isn't a car versus people narrative. This is about cities actually being more nimble, resilient, green, successful, economically successful, and equitable for people uh, all the time, not just during a pandemic. So I hope what sticks, there's a lot of physical details and improvements to cities that I believe will stick. There's some negatives that I think we have to make sure don't stick, like loss of transit ridership. That yeah, would be sure. a really big problem if that's stuck. Mm-hmm. But, but right off the bat, I just hope we see our cities better, differently, our streets differently. And that leads to a better culture uh, of reconsidering how our space is used by people, by everyone. Interesting stuff. Brent, thanks very much for this. We appreciate you getting up early on a Sunday morning to join us and uh, and throw a whole lot of really interesting ideas onto the table, as uh, we certainly are uh, in the middle of a game-changing experience that uh, well, we're, we're, we're sharing the experience, let's hope, and therefore sharing the outcome. So let's hope that's uh, carefully considered. Thanks so much for this. We'll talk again. My pleasure. Brent Totterin is former Vancouver City Chief Planner. You can find him online at TotterinUrbanWorks.com. We received this notification here at the radio place a few days ago. Quote, Vancouver's historic Punjabi market will be celebrating its 50th anniversary on May 31st. Please visit our Instagram for updates on virtual celebrations we're planning. Come celebrate with us via a live stream at 7.10. Well, uh, we're a little ahead of 7.10. That's 7.10 p.m. But here to tell us what to expect tonight at 7 p.m. from the Punjabi Market Regeneration Collective is Mandy Mann, a member of the collective. Mandy, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's nice of you to join us. Uh, So first of all, congratulations on 50 years uh, of the Punjabi Market uh, being a real thing in Vancouver. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
And you know, when I first moved here in the 70s, uh, you know, you, you try when you're, uh, especially in, in my business, you try as quickly as you can to learn as much as possible about where you've just moved to because you're on the radio there every day and you've got to sound like you've lived there. So one of my colleagues said, well, you got to go to the Punjabi market. And so and said, where is it? It's on Main Street. I said, okay. So I jumped in the car and went up and down Main Street looking for a store called the Punjabi market. <laughs> little, re- little realizing, Mandy, there isn't an actual Punjabi market store. In fact, it's a district of several stores. It's Main Street between East 48th and East 51st. There's a whole lot of stores going on, isn't there? That's right, Sterling. It is. It's a a three-block radius over there, a bunch of stores, entrepreneurs, restaurants, grocers, etc., how did it get started, and, and how did it become a thing, a collective, where all of the people involved realize that there's strength in numbers, and if we sort of unite and promote this as a destination rather than a bunch of individual retail operations, we might get more traffic? So, so um, the Punjabi market in Vancouver is the oldest little India in North America, actually, um, and it's, you know, the first place outside of South Asia to have a Punjabi street sign. Essentially, um, you know, back in 1970, uh, when there was a big um, migration of South Asians to Vancouver, Canada, um, there are the generations, our elders were pioneers. And um, the first store was a fabric or clothing store that opened on May 31st in 1970 by Mr. Suchet Sinclair and his wife, Herbunt for Claire. Um, And after that, you know, it kind of, became this place where uh, people from our community could come together to, you know, get the spices they needed, the fabrics, the jewelry, the groceries to mingle with each other. And that kind of just set off this motion and more, more people realized, you know, you know, this is something we can do. We can become entrepreneurs. We can make this a place um, where people can come together. Well, and of course, you know, we have commercial drive and that gets referred to by many as Little Italy here in Vancouver. And so uh, Main Street between 48th and 51st, you you refer to it yourself. Little India, the largest one in North America, did you say, Mandy? The oldest one, yeah. Okay. And so has it seen better days? In other words, has it, did it peak at one point and has it fallen from that peak? And if so, why? So that's an interesting um, question, Sterling, and I guess that's how you kind of look at the market. Um, so, you know, the Punjabi Market Regeneration Collective, the PMRC, as we call ourselves, a group of individuals who are vested in the regeneration of this area. So even though the market, you know, once was bustling and hustling and, um, you know, there has been a lot of migration of these entrepreneurs to Surrey, it's still quite, you know, a successful area. There are a lot of um, businesses there that still cater to the South Asian community that are quite successful, Um, you know, and our goal is to regenerate the area, bring art and culture, support new entrepreneurship and the evolution of the market into what it can be in the future and to try to, you know, um, 
try to up that foot traffic again in the area. Sure. And I can remember when it first opened in the, the late 70s and early 80s, particularly, Mandy, uh, were just fabulous times. I mean, it was so colorful. It was so busy. There were just so many uh, uh, people who were coming. Literally, you could see them coming from not just that part of the city of Vancouver, but coming in from other p- parts of Metro Vancouver as well. And as you've also indicated, some of those entrepreneurs made a pile of dough and decided, well, let's go to Surrey. Is there a place in Surrey that resembles in that kind of concentrated way that we have at the Punjabi market on Main Street in Vancouver? Is there any replication of that anywhere in Surrey or are they scattered out? So I think it's um, hard to compare kind of what's going on in Surrey versus the market here in Vancouver. Thought so, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you want to directly compare, I don't think there is anything else in North America that even compares to the Punjabi market in Vancouver, um, if you are to put it in that kind of perspective. It's quite a unique area and uh, has a lot of history uh, to it. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the history of the market. At one point, uh, now you, you talked about the very first store being opened 50 years ago today. How long did it take for other businesses to recognize that, hey, these people are onto something. Maybe, you know, we're getting a little traffic. Maybe we should jump on the bandwagon. How long did it take from that first store opening 50 years ago today for the market to become a thing, Mandy? So, um, from my understanding, it was quite quick, actually. It kind of took off like a wildfire. There was, within six months, there were several other businesses that opened, uh, whether that was grocery stores, jewelry stores, other fabric stores. Um, and it quite quickly became the place to be for South Asians in the Lower Mainland and also for the greater community in general to enjoy the food and culture um, very, very, very quickly. Yeah, and, and and it was the early 90s. You were talking about the first Punjabi street signs outside of Asia. They are still there. And in fact, they have been there since, uh, what, 93, I believe it was, right? Yeah, that's right. July of 93. So again, these are these. This is uh, something that you and your your fellow members of the regenerate, regeneration collective uh, have decided. This this is really worth saving. This is something that it's it goes beyond just an entrepreneurial exercise. Although the fact that there is a business bottom line to it doesn't hurt the effort either, does it? Exactly, exactly, Sterling. Um, we really believe that. Uh, by bringing more art and culture to the area, regenerating the area and supporting, you know, local entrepreneurs that it could really um, just bring back life to the area and keep it going for the generations to come. So is there, now you're, you're talking about this this committee of younger people like yourself, self-minded or like-minded younger business people uh, in, the, in the community. Uh, because you're putting so much time and effort into the restoration of the Punjabi market area, it must be because in, uh, in part, Mandy, at least, you sense a real appetite amongst younger shoppers for a revival of that sort of phenomenon. So, you know, um, the Punjabi market uh, area, I think, holds a dear place in a lot of people's houses, or hearts, sorry. And not only, you can see that from the members on the committee who are from either the south, 
South Vancouver area or in the lower mainland in general. But I think there was, growing up, you know, for our generation, that was a place of belonging. That was a place where you went with your family shopping, where you saw your friends, where you went to go eat. And so I think that this place place has a lot of nostalgia for our generation and we just want to pay homage to our our elders and keep that going for the generations in the future good stuff so so starts tonight at seven o'clock or sorry seven ten where does one go to uh, jump in on the 50th anniversary punjabi market celebration online tonight so the um, you can join us for the celebration at a few different places. Okay, um, we'll have it up airing on all our social media outlets. So um, on Instagram at Punjabi Market YBR or via Facebook or YouTube, uh, the Punjabi Market. Our website PunjabiMarket.ca will be streaming it as well, and as well as we've been um, our broadcasting partner Sanja TV. If you have a subscription, they'll be airing um, the virtual live stream this evening as well. Um, and just to mention as well that City Hall and the Bledel Conservatory will be lit up in orange in honor of the 50th celebration. So if you're in the area, uh, that's also something to look out for. Excellent. Well, have a great party tonight, Mandy. Thanks very much for doing this this morning. And congratulations to all involved and in the Pajabi Market for its 50th anniversary today. Thank you very much, Sterling. Uh, we hope that you join us virtually for the celebrations this evening. Count on it. Thanks a lot. A pleasure to welcome Anastasia Lynn back to the program today. Anastasia joining us from New York again. She is a Canadian actress and model and ambassador for China policy with Canada's McDonald Laurier Institute, here to talk about some epic moments in history when it refers to China, first of all in the Canadian courts uh, on Wednesday of this past week, and then also in the legislature. Assembly in Beijing as they rubber stamp the Hong Kong security package. Anastasia, welcome back. Good to have you with us again. Hi again. So let's talk first and foremost about the Meng Wanzhou decision here by the Supreme Court of British Columbia to permit the extradition process to the United States to carry forward her lawyers here in Vancouver arguing uh, that uh, she should be released. She's basically being held as a pawn by the Trump administration uh, on trumped-up charges, no pun intended. Uh, The courts uh, listened to the arguments from both sides and ultimately the decision was made to go forward with the extradition. This does not bode well for the two Michaels, the two Canadians, held in custody in China, does it? Mm, It doesn't, but the rule of law will prevail in Canada. The judge presiding over this case has already indicated that she will not be swayed by outside forces, and that's wonderful. That's the value that we stood up for in the past. And, And so her case record also demonstrates that too. So no matter how the extradition case proceeds, it will be fair and impartial. But that's on the jurisdiction side. Like, um, but what, what about the political side? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the justice minister could still decide to not extradite Hmong to U.S., regardless of what the court decides to do. And the fact that the justice minister hasn't really taken this option off the table is one of the reasons why China thinks that um, its aggressive bullying still might work. And the current government's history of dealing with China is not really helping us with that, too. 
So we've had, uh, just speaking in terms of the way the current government has dealt with China recently, we saw, for example, Australia, our Commonwealth cousins, along with the United States and the UK, collectively uh, put out uh, an urgent uh, request for a, a solid and thorough investigation of the origin of the COVID-19 virus. You're, you were born and raised in Wuhan, China. That is said to be the epicenter of this global pandemic. Uh, and some Western nations, the ones I've just listed, are, are quite adamant about, come on now, let's find out what really happened. Canada did not participate in any of that and has been, at very best, meek when it comes to China. I'm very disappointed with that. I'm not, I was not raised um, and born in Wuhan. I was in the neighboring province, Hunan, which is about four hours drive from Wuhan. Um, okay. An investigation is definitely needed. Um, right now, there is this rhetoric that if you criticize Chinese government or ask where the virus is from, everybody seems to be afraid to talk about the origin of the virus. Right. They criticize everybody but the government and the place where the virus actually started, and that's wrong. And they must know that by investigating the origin of the virus and how it spread, what was hidden in the process when this pandemic was at the beginning, that's actually crucially important, important in the interest of Chinese people, too, because it was the Chinese communist official that covered up the virus and endangered the entire Chinese population. Anastasia, we got a bit of a sticky wicket going on here now because of the origin of the virus and the fact that it did happen somewhere in China, most likely in Wuhan, whether or not it was biological or organic in nature is still up for up for discussion. But what's happened, and I suspect the government of China is involved to some extent in what's happened, because the politically correct set has decided, as was the case here in in Canada, in the initial days of learning about the pandemic, our first official formal reaction was to be concerned about racism. And so our government officials went out for dim sum and other uh, uh, efforts to show that there was no animosity towards the Chinese community. And that was all fine and well, but they, they sort of spun their wheels for a couple of weeks doing that politically correct stuff instead of doing urgent medical preparation stuff, but it still complicates the mix, Anastasia, because it's easy when investigating this to play the racism card. Well, then I think to a large extent, that's what Chinese Communist Party wants. Yes. They do very well to play into that rhetoric, but they're not, whoever does that, play the racist card, is not really doing Chinese people any justice, because Everybody knows that the virus was spreading at certain point, and they know it's from China. Yes. And the fear, the panic will make them even primarily react toward what they think um, is dangerous. You know, so uh, being transparent and being informative about everything is actually going to help to reduce those reactions, those primal reactions toward uh, our community. Well, an investigation and science. And so I, I had no problem, by the way, with the, the, the uh, United States and Australia and others uh, standing straight up and going, look, we need to get to the bottom of this as quickly as possible. And it's not political. It's, it's global health. That's what the issue is here, really. The government of China chose to see it as political. Political, didn't they? 
They did, and they have been doing that with other issues as well. Um, whenever the outside world criticized Chinese governments doing be it the Uyghur concentration camp, the persecution of minorities in China, they always say that the West being racist, they're being um, trying to sub, trying to undermine China, trying to destabilize China. That's the way they justify their their own rule uh, to the Chinese people. And we shouldn't really help them to emphasize that. We should help the Chinese people to actually use their voices. We've seen too many cases of members of Chinese-Canadian community trying to speak up, trying to tell the truth, and their voices are so marginalized. And those voices, I think, to a large extent, it represents a lot of the voices inside China, too. Sure. And to give them support is to give real support to Chinese, people of Chinese origin. Anastasia Lin is back with us from New York. Anastasia is the Canada-China Policy Ambassador for Canada's McDonald-Laurier Institute. And Anastasia, we were talking uh, earlier, uh, and, and we alluded to this, so, so let's get right to it. This is the uh, passage, and you and I have talked about this in the past, prior to it, so become official, but Beijing rubber-stamped the uh, the Hong Kong security bill uh, last week. Uh, and in response, quite interestingly, Britain, uh, almost uh, Canada, by the way, did join the U.S., Australia, and the European Union in criticizing this decision to uh, basically uh, remove the autonomy provisions from Hong Kong that they had essentially been guaranteed since uh, parting from Britain. Uh, and Britain uh, turned right around and and said, well, listen, uh, we can make arrangements uh, and, and form a pathway to citizenship for many millions of Hong Kong people uh, who want to bail if this isn't their cup of tea. So that door was opened. I've been to Hong Kong, and I've talked to people about this uh, personally, Anastasia, and, and by and large, the, the response I had was, you know, uh, I'd love to get out of here when, when, when the time comes, but I'm not going to be able to afford to. It's too expensive. My family here, my business is here. I'm pretty much stuck here myself. I don't see a mass exodus from Hong Kong as a result of this draconian bill being passed. Do you? Well, I think there will be an influx of uh, refugees from Hong Kong after things things are already getting really bad. Yes. Because to live in Hong Kong mean, means that they have to adjust to a new reality. It's basically like, Sterling, if you move to China today and have to get used to all the uh, blocking of Facebook, Twitter, mm-hmm. basically no transparent information online, a lot of Hong Kongers are actually deleting their Facebook, deleting their social media posting, and downloading VPN to prepare prepare for this draconian law mm-hmm. because um, the internet is no longer going to be uncensored and um, whatever they posted before like supporting democracy and all that is going to be used against them and to pers- prosecute them afterward so this is an entirely new reality when you used to live in a democratic free society and now a totalitarian regime well, it's interesting, too, because Hong Kong, in addition to being uh, the sort of the cash register for China, because they had that uh, one system, two countries set up where Hong Kong was the, the sort of free uh, entry. It was this free trade area and China, the rest of China was pretty much locked down. That is, has evaporated. And I guess the real danger for Hong Kong, Anastasia, going forward is the loss of its position as a global financial center. Well, it has. Usually economic prosperity comes with the freedom of the political system. 
And under a totalitarian regime like that, uh, it's not looking good from here on. And so what, uh, what remedies uh, can Western nations, for example, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of banks do business through Hong Kong? That's their conduit into and out of Asia. Uh, where, where do you see the likely shift to take place? If there's going to be a shift away uh, in terms of a, a central Asian financial center, it's certainly not going to be Beijing. Do you see Singapore as a possibility? That I'm not quite sure, but I think everybody around the world, people who used to do business in Hong Kong, have to now adjust to the new reality that Hong Kong is no longer what it is. And it's very disappointing and saddening for many people around the world. We've talked before about the influence of the government of China in the affairs of nations around the world, including Canada, and through their various trade organizations, and in particular, Anastasia, through their enormous financial contributions, donations, grants, and otherwise. to Cana- the money they don't have. To yeah. Canadian post-secondary institutions. They're very big on Canadian campuses in terms of grants and research uh, projects and any way they can find to, I hesitate to use the word, but invade Canadian campuses to their benefit. That's true. With Confucius Institute is a very good example. Right. It poses as a language and cultural program, but it actually is an arm of the Chinese propaganda department, the communist propaganda. It's a directly controlled by them. And what they teach in those classrooms are basically Chinese communist propaganda. And that would be what our children learn. And they also use their leverage to stifle free um, freedom of speech on campuses and academic freedom. As you look now, post the official rubber stamping of the Hong Kong security bill, and and we're not getting as many pictures of the protests and demonstrations in Hong Kong that we used to, partly, of course, this weekend, regrettably, Anastasia, being offset by pictures from all over America, including where you are in New York, with other forms of protest and demonstration. But back to Hong Kong, uh, is is the energy being sapped out of those brain? young people who are trying in their own way and the only way they know how and the only way they have at their uh, uh, fingertips themselves in the streets. Is that going to continue or are they gradually just going to be ground down? Well, I think it's like what Machiavelli has said. Once people taste it freedom, it's very hard to give it up. You can't convince people who used to live in democracy to submit themselves under totalitarian rule. Right. This, a lot of youth in Hong Kong right now are writing letters to their family. It's almost like, a, I don't know what's called in English, but it's almost like they're going to their death and this is their will. All right. And they're preparing for that. It's really heartbreaking to see all of that, but that shows their determination. But there is also despair that's growing in the community because they don't see how any other way this is going to play out so yeah so let's talk about one thing that I read about the other day, and, and because you have that background, I, I thought I'd run it by you. If there is an Achilles heel in the structure of the of the current regime in China, it's the fact that over the last 20 years, they've encouraged the development of a middle class. It's not the same size as it is in the West, but nonetheless, it's a fairly wealthy middle class. And uh, those those class distinctions are becoming more obvious, and if anything... The, the, the unrest 
that may evolve. You're talking over a billion people here who are pretty tightly oppressed. That middle class may, in fact, be China's downfall. Do you agree? Well, it is possible. In the past, the Communist Party had used the economic prosperity as almost like a hostage to hold a lot of Chinese people um, who want to live a better life, yeah. to keep quiet. But now, if the rest of the world act, and China's economy is not going well, so once they lose that economic power to control its population, and also with this, in the middle of this pandemic, so many more Chinese, ordinary Chinese citizens who are willing to be more vocal. Even my speeches in, uh, in the Oxford Union are getting so many Chinese people commenting. In the past, I have never seen that ever before. They're saying that we're so proud of you, everything you say is true. Thank you for being our voice. And these kind of comments, and they're just rushing in. It's as if this pandemic has hit a primal spot, yeah. and they know that they have to speak up now. I'm seeing that, and hopefully it will grow and we will hear them. Well, I hope so, too. And Anastasia, I hope we can continue to hear from you as well. It's just a real treat to have you back on the program. It's been a month or so. And as uh, the summer goes forward, we look forward to intersecting with you a couple more times just to keep an eye on this one and uh, to keep the truth on the airwaves. Okay. thank you. Thank you. Anastasia Lynn from the McDonald Laurier Institute. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.